Absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ileary. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hi, Tim. How are you? Well, I'm great because it's all of a sudden summer descended today on London, so I've been uh, enjoying the outdoors world. I've really enjoyed the grey weather in Wales. Moving on. (laughs) Um... (laughs) (laughs) I'm drinking... A sherry wine from Malaga. Ooh. Fancy batch. <laughs> it is delightful. It looks a lovely colour. It's so good. I bought it. I stocked up on it, actually, because um, it was strongly uh, recommended by a bunch of people who know their stuff. Um, it was one of those wines that's, like, super-duper nice, but can be found in Aldi's. <laughs> mm, yes. So it's one of them, and it was all the rage about two years ago at Christmas time because it does slightly taste like mince pies. I think it was only last episode we were saying how you will drink Christmas flavours all year round. <laughs> <laughs> ho, ho, ho. And I, that's why we're talking about Christmas. Well, we're not, we're not. <laughs> why are you drinking it? Yeah, I've not gone mad. It's not Christmas yet. Um, I'm actually thinking about Shakespeare. Aha! Forsooth, Zunes, etc. Um, good. Well, I am actually sherry adjacent for my beverage because I've got a port. Ooh. <laughs> Not a million miles away, fortified wine. Um, I chose port specifically because it reminds me of my final year performance when I was studying drama as a, at a degree level for BA and at the end of the third year we had to do sort of a big a big show a big performance of some kind to demonstrate our learning you know throughout the degree some people also did dissertations some people did technical specializations etc but everyone had to do like get together in a group of about six seven people and do a show and you could choose whatever you wanted. It could be absolutely anything. Um, you know, it could be it could be improvised. It could be comedy. It could be classical. It could be all sorts of stuff. Street theatre. The only rule we had was it you weren't allowed to do it on campus. So you couldn't use any of the university's facilities. You had to just figure it out for yourself. And we had no budget, so you had to just figure it out for yourself. Like what were you going to do? So my group um had all decided to do Shakespeare actually weird side note I hadn't decided to do Shakespeare you had to write down like your top three things that you were interested in doing and then a committee of of like our year group assigned people into groups based on their interests so everyone in the year got either their first second or third choice of what they wanted to do apart from me I was the only one who'd written down three things that no one else wanted to do. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so they just called me up and they were like, Tim, you can pick any group you want to be in because none of your choices are available. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I looked at who was in each group and I just picked a group that had some of my mates in it. And I was like, that'll be fun. And they were doing, they'd chosen to do Shakespeare. The, I'm getting to the point of why I'm drinking port very shortly. Um, a lot of this episode might be like that, by the way, because of <laughs> because of university. Um, but we decided to do a play of Much Ado About Nothing, uh, massacred, but good fun. And the venue we chose, of course, was a pub. Seeing as we could spend, you know, six weeks putting together a show anywhere, we were like, why would we spend time you know, as some people did in abandoned buildings or in a park when it might be raining. Why don't we just spend six weeks in a pub? So we found this lovely place called the White Hart, which was a 16th century um, coaching inn. And just walked in and inquired and I said, don't suppose you'd let us perform here a couple of nights, something, you know, do you have some space we could have a look at? And they went, well, actually, we've got a whole half of the building that we don't use at all. Um, because we're just not busy enough in the bar, but it's the old port bar. And it had like sawdust on the floor and they had all these old port barrels and it was really beautiful. And they had a, a wine garden at the back with a well and lots of wisteria and statues. And I'd been in Exeter for three years by that point and I'd never really noticed much of this sort of stuff. And we'd never been in the port bar because it had always been closed off. So they said... They just went, here's the keys, do what you want with it. <laughs> We're like, that's crazy. I love Devon. Um, so we did. So we just sort of spent six weeks in there and we had a tradition that we would have a glass of port to honour the port bar um, every day. <laughs> and it was a way for us to like support the bar and say thank you. So Brilliant. port very much reminds me of that period of time when I was doing my final degree piece of Much Ado About Nothing where we consumed a lot of port throughout the weeks and enjoyed this, this glorious 16th century coaching house. <laughs> My brother drinks a lot of port. He's a big, big fan. Glugs the stuff. Mm. Well, it is delicious. Um, so that was the first kind of example I was going to tell you about with um, drinking in Shakespeare. I have a lot of experience with drinking in Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> full disclosure not just because I did it at university my master's degree was also specifically in staging Shakespeare but we ended up performing in pubs a lot as I said the university encouraged us to like go out and do stuff in the city rather than in studios so that wasn't the only one I did in association with a pub uh, I also did a piece called Star Cross Dressed Lovers <laughs> <laughs> Which was, yeah, um, which was an amalgamation of famous love scenes in Shakespeare. So we did Romeo and Juliet and we did uh, Taming of the Shrew and some other things, but we gender swapped them. So me and my mate, Terry, um, who uh, was a lady, uh, we swapped the kind of the traditional roles. Obviously, there's a lot of cross-dressing anyway in Shakespeare because they were all written as male parts originally, you know, the the men played the female parts so there's a lot you can play with like there's a lot of jokes that only make sense if they're played by a man for example as a lady um so we played up on that but not only did we do that we also performed it in the gay bar in exeter which was <laughs> like this dingy underground place um but quite fun 
And so I, I asked them, I said, oh, would you mind if we came in and just did some Shakespeare around your bar <laughs> on one of your nights? And they were like, yeah, sure. Um, can you can you imagine this happening in London, by the way? Are you going to a bar and you're like, can I just like have your bar? Anyway, um, so we went, we invited like our professors to come down and see the work that we were doing. And um, we, you know, performed amongst all these drunk gay people and did these love scenes and stuff. And it was so much fun because, you know, when it first starts, they're like, what is this? Do I have to sit quietly and watch? And then you start playing with them and they sort of get the joke, you know, they get the thing of it. And then the professor stayed and we all had drinks and we had a really good night party night dressed as Shakespeare people. Um, (laughs) So that was really fun. And another one I did for my master's degree, not actually a Shakespeare play, but a contemporary of Shakespeare's, who was kind of just as popular at the time called Night of the Burning Pestle. Um, And it's a really riotous comedy. And I decided to do that one, not in a pub, but next to a pub, uh, in association with a pub. So I did it on the Exeter Quayside, which is this lovely outdoor space, kind of as much as it gets touristy, it's like a nice tourist area. Um, And they had this kind of old fish market cover with cobblestones. And I set up a little stage there and some chairs. But there, there were a few pubs like around that space. And I said to the pub, I'm going to perform here for a couple of days over the weekend. You might want to like bring out a mobile bar so that the people here can enjoy your drinks and you'll make some extra money. And they were like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. So they put like a little local cider stand uh, next to the stage. Now, the play itself is about a troupe of actors that come to a provincial town. and they put on a play but while they're putting on the play they get heckled by the audience and it's um, like this local couple man and wife who are saying oh our our apprentice and you know our our, our child can do a better version like they're a great actor go on go up on stage have a go and so these people um like from the crowd from the local area come on and start performing their own play in between the scenes of the play that's being performed all the while this couple are heckling throughout the entire thing from the audience and i i'd kind of written an adaptation of this and i was directing it for for my masters and then i thought well what better person to cast as the one who sits in the audience and just heckles than me So I also played the wife um, (laughs) who who heckled the play, uh, the poor actors all the way along. And to really get into the mood of it, I made liberal use of that cider bar. And I do remember that by the end of the show, I was um, sipping cider and I was sat on my professor's lap and being like, so what do you think? (laughs) While the show was going on, (laughs) it was all very meta. (laughs) Uh. But what I learned in my several years of specialising in Renaissance theatre as opposed to kind of contemporary drama is it is best done in the spirit of fun and inebriation, conviviality, noise, movement, all of that sort of good stuff. It doesn't work as well when you're quiet and when you're in the dark. And I think if you've ever managed to go, you know, to Shakespeare's Globe, for example, or some of the kind of outdoor street performances or other things like that, you know what I mean. It's very different. They The actors talk directly to you. There's lots of references throughout all of Shakespeare about the audience being drunk. 
and you that's the gag and you play on it mm-hmm. and you know they they sort of banter with you and of course within his troupe as well the the comedy parts were they weren't the same as the serious actors like he was they're not kind of he doesn't write down the lines for them to learn and just deliver as they've been written he lets them improvise so there would be lots of modern references from the day thrown in. There would be lots of extra banter. And even in his plays, you can read sections where he has a go at one of his comedy actors for making too much of his part and taking too much time in the comedy. Mm. And what a lot of people don't know as well, and this is another thing I specialised in, is after the play, they would put on short comedy skits. So the comedy actors in the play would be able to then kind of go and do their bit of stand-up and their comedy sketches and their bawdry and their songs and their jigging and all that sort of stuff afterwards. So if you imagine you sat there through, you know, Hamlet, it's all ended tragically, everyone's dead, and then you get like a few minutes and then on they come and they're singing and dancing around and making jokes about knobs. It's it's a great way to finish your theatrical experience. <laughs> I remember my first... Um... Shakespeare experience. It was when I was in secondary school and we were reading Othello um, and saw the teacher got us all to go down to Swansea Grand Theatre to watch production there one afternoon. And I got <laughs> I got stuck in the lift uh, <laughs> on the way up. <laughs> it's, it, and I missed like the whole first kind of hour of it. I was stuck in the lift the whole time. <laughs> oh mate <laughs> that's not a great experience isn't it that's that yeah. that's not conviviality <laughs> um there's a company actually that specializes in drunkenness and shakespeare called Shitface shakespeare which great. um started in the uk but are now sort of international you know they're kind of like a franchise they all over the place and the conceit of that is that every performance, one of the actors is drunk. <laughs> so they've learnt, they've sort of learned their lines, they've, um, you know, had a bit of rehearsal. They alternate who does it to save their livers, you know, for health reasons and all the rest of that sort of stuff. It changes each time which one the, the drunk actor is. But yeah, they, they do a few shots before the show starts and they sort of get progressively worse as it goes on. I've not actually seen it myself. They, they're very popular among students. I think the the idea is really funny. Um, I think you need to also have a good production on top of that in order for it to be worth the whole gag. Otherwise, that's a long time for essentially one joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've certainly done a lot of productions, uh, particularly Shakespeare, where a few, a few shots of whatever have been imbibed before we uh, go on stage. All throughout it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of drunk people in Shakespeare, it's fine. Well, there is. It's mentioned in every single one of his plays. It is, uh, as I think we'll explore a few of those as we go through the episode, but it is a key part of uh, of the, I'll say not so much the drama, but the atmosphere. In a couple of cases, it does, it does dip into the drama. So uh, one of the things you've got to remember, I suppose, is at that time there weren't any non-alcoholic options. (laughs) There was only alcohol because there was no clean water. There was no tea or coffee yet. You know, from our tea and coffee episodes, you know it came in um, a bit later, around the time of um, uh, the Civil War. And we are sort of, you know, around the 1580s and so at the moment, onwards into the 1610s. So 
the soft drink of those days was ale. <laughs> That's what <laughs> so everyone good. everyone drank, you know, any class, any age, including children, from breakfast and bed till bedtime, you drink ale. Um, it wasn't as alcoholic then as it is now. That's important to remember. Like we have a lot of strong ales now, and then it was a lot weaker, so you wouldn't get as drunk as quickly. But they would probably be chinning um, at least eight pints a day, you know. So it was constant because it, it was their water. But also it gives them a really um, important source of vitamin B that they might not otherwise get. So they have to have it for many reasons. Um, as I say, this one was drunk by everyone, rich and poor. At the time, um, when Shakespeare is starting out, ale is unhopped. So it's quite sweet and fruity, which comes from the esters from the yeast and from the malt. But we don't have that added bitterness yet. That's coming from Holland. So it's quite popular in Holland to have beer that is hopped. Um, but by the time Shakespeare finishes his career, the hopped beer is much more popular. So this is the time which we're switching over from sort of sweet, fruity, low alcohol ales to slightly stronger hop beer. Um, Shakespeare's father, in fact, was an ale taster in Stratford, which is not a euphemism. It was an actual job. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you thinking, yeah, so am I. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. No, he was an official ale taster, which was an important job because they have to monitor the quality of the ingredients, which, you know, they don't have chemical spectroscopes or anything. They have to taste it. Um, and also to make sure that they're sold at the regulated prices according to the crown. Because it is such an important thing for everyone to have access to. Um, so yeah, close connections. And in fact, um, Shakespeare ended up building a brewery onto his house in Stratford. Which might sound a bit excessive, and we might all want it. But uh, actually it was quite common for people who had employees you know, in their, in their home or in their manor to have a brewery on site. Because giving them beer was part of the pay. So you, you would pay them a wage, but you, they would also be entitled to, you know, like eight pints of beer a day as well. So it just made sense to have an on-site brewery than to have to buy that in and then give it away. Um, Aqua Vitae. I was also going to tell you about, because ale is by far the most referenced drink in, in all the Shakespeare plays. Aqua Vitae pops up quite a bit as well. And it, it, it literally means water of life. I think now we mostly... Um, associate that with whiskey but it kind of meant any spirit so it would have included brandy as well um it's referenced especially in romeo and juliet by the nurse who requests it when she finds out about tybalt's death um and romeo being banished and she also requests it when she finds that juliet is apparently dead in her bed and this is typical of when aquavitae is referenced because it's more of a restorative it's like i've had a shock or i need to feel better it's not a social drink, the spirits. Um, so that's kind of how that's used. There's a there's a line in, <laughs> which makes me chuckle, in Antony and Cleopatra that I have seen misinterpreted before, which is um, the line, I have yet room for six scotches more. Scotches <laughs> is not referring to whiskey. Scotches meant um, wounds when you're fighting. Like when you sword fight and you mark, you mark a scotch. So it's someone saying, like, they can still carry on fighting, not have six whiskeys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, next one I was going to tell you about is claret. So um, we probably think of claret now as this is kind of quite dark, dark red wine. Uh, at the time then, it was closer to pink. It was much lighter than the uh, red Bordeaux. Rosé. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not quite rosé, but like <laughs> pinker. Um, but the reason why claret is interesting is because... Obviously, Shakespeare's writing in the um, in the 16th century, but in the 12th century, that area, Bordeaux and Gascony, were English because that territory became English as part of the marriage of Henry Plantagenet and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Henry Plantagenet is Henry II. Um, and so Bordeaux wines were sent in large quantities to England. Like They became very popular. Everyone had access to it. But by the end of the Hundred Years' War, um, they'd lost Gascony. And so they didn't have any claret anymore. The availability had decreased. And they were clearly still feeling the loss of that um, in Shakespeare's time because of how much it's mentioned um, in these plays. It's like keenly observed when they had claret and when they didn't have claret. Because Henry II's, one of Henry II's son was King John. And that's the first of Shakespeare's history plays, right? And then Henry the Sixth is when the claret was gone, and then we get Richard the Third is the play after Henry the Sixth. So we're spanning like the history plays basically span the availability of claret. <laughs> that's why they're mentioned so much. Um, it was, and you know, it was a, a luxury at that time as well, though, because of it was an imported. Thing rather than you know readily available, wine was twelve times higher uh, in cost than beer. So really, it was only drunk amongst the courts um, and kings and people like that. Then, as I say, Richard by Richard the Third, we don't have claret anymore. Instead, what we get is Malmsey, which I think is a great word. Um, and Malmsey, it's a it's a rich sweet wine and at that time it was generally it was used to refer to greek wine generally in the 16th century now it's just produced on the island of madeira um but where it's notably used as i say is in richard iii so already by then he's saying okay we don't have the french claret anymore we've got this greek wine in instead because that's richard the first time we're at the end of the hundred years war so richard as you may know in the play is a very bad man um, he orders the execution. This is these are the kind of essays I wrote when I was doing my masters. He's a very bad man. Um, he orders the execution of his brother, the Duke of Clarence, and the assassins go to Clarence, who's being kept in the Tower of London. Clarence doesn't know what's going on. He asks for a cup of wine, and then the one of the assassins says, "You shall have wine enough, my lord, and none." What that's a reference to is the fact that they are about to drown Clarence in a large cask of Malmsey. In a butt of Malmsey, as it were. So, nice use of wine throughout the history plays if you're looking for it. I want like a bit of wine. I need to drink more wine. I don't drink much wine. <laughs> well, you've got the sherry on the go. Yeah, I'm enjoying it, actually. It's lovely. Mm -hmm. Yum. Have you got some... Uh... Some beverages you want to tell me about? Uh, I'd like to talk about my sack. Um, 
Are there any beverages you'd like to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I'd like to talk about sack wine. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, You. Sack. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, don't I need to concentrate? (laughs) (laughs) Are you feeling the pressure to concentrate because it's my master's? Yeah. It's like, (laughs) I I can't mess this up. Um, which is why I'm just going to talk about my sack. Yeah, great. So, sack is an antiquated wine term referring to white fortified wines, which were usually imported from Spain or the Canary Islands. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned earlier, um, they were a lot more expensive because they were imported. And there was a sack from different areas, different origins. So you had Canary sack, which I'm sure you'll guess is from the Canary Islands. Uh, Malaga sack, which is what I've got, a Malaga wine. I really want to make a joke about Canary sack. Is it? Go on. It's quite a, it's quite a smirk joke. So prepare yourself. Okay. <clears throat> canary sack. I bet that's the dog's bollocks. No. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> Next we've got palm sack. <laughs> So palm sack is from Palma de Mallorca. And then the most famous one is sherry sack from Jerez de la Frontera. Uh, sherry sack obviously later gave way to the name sherry. Mm-hmm. And sherry is pretty much the only one of those wines that's still widely exported. Um, so sack is now commonly known as sherry. Um, sack is sometimes seen included in the name of some sherries uh, to this day. <laughs> There's a really good name of a, a sherry from Williams and Humbert called Dry Sack. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you chose this one to talk about. Of course. Dry, dry sack. Um, so, why is it called sack, you ask? Why? Hey, Larry, um, why is it called sack? Why do you think it's called sack? <clears> hmm. <throat> um... Is it because it has a good mouthfeel? <laughs> Was that one oh better than God. the dog's bollocks joke? Uh, literally, I had a mouthful of sack as you said that. Dear <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, no, it's not. Nothing to do with mouthfeel. Oh, okay. Um, so, according to the Collins English Dictionary and the Oxford English Dictionary, um, they derive the word sack from the French word sec, which means dry. Um, but they can't explain the change of the vowels, so they're a bit... Mm, there's a lot of people out there that say, no, 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 it's wrong. They think it's actually derived from the Spanish word saca, which means to draw out. So, Ooh, I mean... Tough choice. I'm inclined towards the Spanish one. Well, yeah, it's, it's imported from Spain, so I'm going to let them have that. I was, do you know, I was thinking, though, like, drawn out, as in drawn out, drawing flavours out of the barrel. But mm-hmm. that's because we just did the barrel episode, so that's my bias. Well, most sack was um, matured in wooden barrels, so mm-hmm. it makes sense. So, yes, mm. let's uh, say that Spain wins there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't choose this just because I got to say the word sack a lot. Um, I, I chose it because 
Uh, Shakespeare mentions sack over 40 times in eight of his works. Dirty bastard. <laughs> loved a bit of sack. <laughs> um, and he also drank it enthusiastically at London's taverns. Um, so I think one of my favourite references to Sack uh, was um, his character, Sir John Falstaff. Mm. He said, if I had a thousand sons, the first humane principle I would teach them should be to forswear thin potations and to addict themselves to Sack. Yes. Which is good life advice, really, from a dad. <laughs> it is. <laughs> dad. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it crops up a lot. Um, I won't name them all. Um, but the story of Shakespeare and his sherry sack, as it was known in its time, um, it started when he moved from rural Stratford to London. So there he was arriving in London, and he was quickly acquainted with the taverns, fueled by the fire of the sack. Mm-hmm. Um, so they speculate it was probably an Oloroso, which you still see on sherry bottles to this day. And it basically refers to the way in which it was developed because that was an age where they hadn't really developed the Solera system of aging wines. Um, so they'd re- rely on fortifying it, oxidizing it for preservation and for the transformation. Mm. So Oloroso sack was the most popular thing there. And that's what Shakespeare drunk enthusiastically, they say. It makes, it makes sense given his enthusiasm for Falstaff as a character. Because, you know, he mm-hmm. appears in a few plays, um, the Henry IVs, and also yes. the Merry Wives of Windsor, which was, you know, it's not regarded as one of his better plays, but um, <laughs> it is a merry piss-up, um, of which Falstaff is a central part of it. I mean, I suppose you've got to remember, like, these plays were performed again and again uh, to local crowds. They had their favourites, you know, they would, they loved Falstaff they loved that character because it was really funny and because you know as groundlings as the people who paid a penny to just go and stand on the ground they were all drunk and he was their people if you paid an extra penny and went up in the gallery or again and went up to the top level you know you would be more closely associating your character with the uh the the princes and you know and the kings and all those sorts of people and the the courtiers and those are the ones you're looking to to um yeah so, so Merry Wives of Windsor was very much a kind of last hurrah for the groundlings, I think, in terms of that. But it's it, it's interesting, though, because the the character of um, Prince Harry in Henry IV, part one and two. Um, so in, <laughs> in part one, he is like a man of, you know, closely closely with Falstaff. Falstaff is his friend. He's, he's boozing. He's a rebel. He doesn't, you know appear to want to step up to be the next king and and all this sort of stuff and that's kind of why that's why Falstaff is giving that speech about how um you know Sack kind of evokes all this courage and warmth and all this sort of stuff in you but the character of Prince Henry Harry kind of like really evolves and goes through that change that by the second part he renounces all that sort of stuff he doesn't want to be a wastrel anymore he abandons Falstaff and then steps into that role to be Henry V. Um, and, you know, that's to show his character growth and everything. And then there's this argument as to whether he ever really was a drunkard and a wastrel, whether he was doing it for appearances to make it seem like he was stepping up to the plate. Um, mm-hmm. But there's an interesting kind of callback, I think, in Henry V, 
where Henry V is about to lead the troops into battle. He's doing, you know, the famous speeches of let's go to Ashen Court and fight and all that kind of business. And then an unnamed boy pipes up and says, would I were in an ale house in London, I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. So it's kind of like calling back to the beginning and say, was it really a good idea to stop having a nice time in the pub and to go to war? <laughs> I'm with the boy. <laughs> yeah, let's just go. I'll get pissed. Forget mm-hmm. about it. Um, another drink I'd like to speak about mm-hmm. is a type of mead. Um, I love a bit of mead. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that I was reading about that does it does come up in Shakespeare a little bit, but the reason I want to talk about it is because it has Welsh origins, mm-hmm. um, and that is uh, metheglin mead. We actually mentioned so, this in the uh, molds first mold episode a bit. We did. You taught me how to used. say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, it's a variant of mead traditionally with herbs and spices. Um, but I think the reason why it's so popular at Christmas is because they spice it up with chilies, and they, like you said, they often serve it instead of mulled wine. Um, and the name. So I looked into the name. Um, so it has its origins in Wales. So the Welsh word for mead is mez. Um, and then also, the cause, because metheglin mead is often used as a tonic as well, it, they say it has healing properties. And the Welsh word for healing is mevig. And the Welsh word for liquor is llyn. So it's basically a complete mishmash of all of those words that they put together to make the metheglin mead. Mm. Um, so today it's more commonly found brewed with sweet spices rather than herbs. Um, and it's the combination of honey and spice that makes it really warming to drink, whether it's served warm or not. Um, the references to it, um, they appear in Love's Labour Lost and The Merry Wives of Windsor. Oh, okay. Yeah, so chatting about our pal. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if he's doing his eulogy or not, but they did say that he used to drink a lot of mead, the Metheglin mead as well, so... He's fond of a bit of sack and fond of a bit of meat. <laughs> hey, who isn't? <laughs> <sighs> and that's where I stopped, actually. I didn't research much more because I knew you'd have tons of <laughs> Yeah, I had to cut down. <laughs> much appreciated. Um, I think you will appreciate the next thing I'm going to talk about, though, which is posset. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Are you having flashbacks? I am having flashbacks right. a few times. So a posset as we know it now is this kind of thick, kind of set, creamy dessert, usually lemon, usually flavoured with lemon. In Elizabethan times, it was a drink that was hot milk curdled with ale or wine. Sounds disgusting. Mm, so um, I'm out, yeah. yeah, usually flavoured, like <laughs> spiced and, and sugary and all that sort of stuff. But it, it does sounds a little bit bizarre um do you want to do you want to just say why we laughed at posset i suppose we should otherwise it's annoying uh yeah um <laughs> i'll make it short okay, <laughs> we were at an all day not all day all you can drink brunch <laughs> thankfully it wasn't all day yeah no <laughs> um it would have got a bit merry wise of windsor otherwise um no, it was a all-you-can-drink brunch um, with a bunch of my friends from Wales and yourself, Tim, 
and we were all quite merry and <laughs> unbeknownst to the majority of us it was one of their birthdays Sean it was his birthday and he just hadn't told anyone and so we hadn't, hadn't prepared anything it was just very much like oh yeah it's my birthday and I think he pointed it out because a couple of people on tables around us had birthday cakes brought out with candles and singing and all the fuss and then he kind of said oh it's my birthday as well <laughs> And because we were a little bit too drunk, but also felt a little bit sad for him, we panicked and thought on our feet. And we asked one of the neighbouring tables if we could borrow a candle and pop that in one of the half-eaten lemon possets on our table and sang <laughs> happy birthday to him. And it was the saddest birthday celebration I've ever seen. <laughs> it was really sad. I also remember that we... Um sang you lived your life like a candle in a posset <laughs> yeah we did yeah <laughs> um, all right good thanks that was um that was a brief explanation anyway posset as it was in the elizabethan times the reason i mention it is because it's present in macbeth as a key plot point so when the macbeths are planning to kill king duncan Lady Macbeth drugs the servants, puts them to sleep, the ones that are meant to be guarding King Duncan to make it all easier. And it's uh, possets she drugs. So she says, the doors are open and the servants have sated their thirst and their snores are heard. I drugged their possets. And now I'm just thinking of like, um, Dame Edna Everidge. <laughs> <laughs> I know she says possums, but yeah, still. It's close, isn't it? Are you, are you now picturing Dame Edna playing Lady Macbeth? I am, yeah. Good. I'd, everyone. Well, I'd see that. I'd watch that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's at that point that she says to her husband, all right, there you go. I've, I've drugged them. I've made it easier. Go off and kill the king. And uh, he's not too sure about it. He's sort of losing the will to go and do that. And she says, was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since, and wakes it now, to look so green and pale at what it did so freely. What she's saying is that you can't handle your booze, you're not a man. So there's a lot of emasculating of Macbeth throughout Macbeth, and a lot of that is done with reference to his ability to handle alcohol. You find throughout Shakespeare, like, there are different attitudes to drunkenness. More so in the earlier plays, it's very clowny and fun and bawdry as you get later there's a slight shift in attitudes whereby alcohol can still be you know social used to toast and all that sort of stuff but if you can't handle it that's really disrespectful and it's um unmanly and it partly reflects some of the changing attitudes in society because we are heading you know we've got this sort of real difference of opinion with catholics and protestants as to how alcohol should be enjoyed and we are heading in a few years towards this interregnum, the civil war, where things like, you know, alcohol and theatre are all going to be banned. So you can sort of kind of sense the change through through the place in terms of attitudes. And you see it a lot in Macbeth. Um, mm -hmm. Women were allowed to drink. Few. Um, <laughs> but they generally weren't <laughs> brewers. There was still this kind of misogynist mythology that women will spoil the beer you know, with their boobs and the periods and all. Um, so it's kind of all the more potent, if you like, that Macbeth opens with the witches creating a brew. 
Like they're all standing mm-hmm. around creating this brew to, you know, to be drunk and, and cursing Macbeth and all this sort of stuff. And that would have made sense in that regard to that audience. They would have seen that and gone, oh, women aren't supposed to be brewing. Aside from all the witchy stuff they do as well. Yeah, but it's just that alcohol is like this continuous theme there. So after King Duncan has been murdered, there's a scene with a porter which is the clown role I spoke about where they where they kind of give over time to the clown and you can sort of have a chat with the audience and do what you want. That scene is so hard to understand and wrap your head around now because it was loaded with very specific references and, and language that we just don't use now. So a lot of modern directors either cut it out completely, which I think is a mistake because it's a change in tone and pace, or they rewrite it, which I think is more appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. But within that, the porter says to Macduff, drink, sir, is a great provoker of three things. Nose painting, sleep, and urine. So nose painting is, it, it, you know, it makes your nose go red because you've had too much. And then um, the porter also says that alcohol is an equivocator of lechery as it provokes the desire, but it takes away the performance. So referencing the impotency and desire that comes with alcohol. What he's, what he's doing through that is having a change of pace to kind of the attitudes to alcohol we've seen, but also showing that it goes through all social strata. It is something mm-hmm. that kind of everyone can have a reference to and understand how it affects them. And the whole kind of point of that scene is to take it down to the ground links and to say, I know we've been in the court for ages, but there are real people here too. Um, and then the kind of final bit of, of alcohol that Beth wanted to mention is when he's really, you know, starting to lose his grip and they go to the the dinner, the feast, and he kind of won't sit down at the feast and join in because he can see the ghost of his murdered friend, you know, the friend he killed, Banquo. And mm. everyone's like, what's going on with Macbeth? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, do not muse at me, my most worthy friends. I have a strange infirmity, which is nothing to those that know me. Come, love, and health to all. Then I'll sit down. Give me some wine. Fill full. Drink to the general joy of the whole table and to our dear friend Banquo, whom we miss. Woody were here. To all and him we thirst, and all to all. Now, if you remember the importance of toasting throughout history, you'll know that's a pretty terrible toast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, good to everyone. And oh, don't you wish Banquo was here? But yeah, good. So... That's really like one of the first times that in the general kind of um, society within the court, they can see that something's going on with him, that something's wrong. He's clearly done something. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like drink that gives him the courage to go and do it. And it's also drink that undoes him. He cannot handle his drink. Uh, I like it. Then there's another play that kind of has a similar um, ideas around drunkenness and drinking and so forth that's Othello and -hmm. there's a real key part of Othello that is um, a real crux in in, in Iago's machinations where he decides that he's going to get Cassio drunk who's who's a soldier and then basically set him up for a fight and then tell Othello that um, you know Cassio is dishonorable that he was having it away with his wife which obviously then leads Othello to kill his wife and, you know, all these bad things to happen. So it's a really important kind of part of it. So he says to Cassio, oh, you know, 
have a drink, just one. Cassio actually says to him, I have very poor and unhappy brains for drinking. I could well wish courtesy would invent some other custom of entertainment. So Cassio is saying straight up, I cannot handle my booze, which let's remember is unmanly. Um, but Iago convinces him to have one. He very quickly loses his way. And when he, you know, disappears off stage for a while, he, he goes and gets someone else to start a fight with him. Um, so he's using drink in the very nefarious terms in this. And I, I Iago is the part, you'll probably not be surprised to find out that I have played more than any other Shakespeare roles. <laughs> played it quite a few times. <laughs> and it's so much fun. Because... <laughs> Almost all of Iago's lines are to the audience because he's telling you what he's about to do. None of the other characters know that Iago is a bad man, but you as the audience member see it all the time. So all he's doing is telling you, watch as I do this horrendous thing. And you really enjoy it as an audience member. You know you shouldn't, but you do. So he's really fun to play. But with this particular thing with Cassio getting him drunk, there's all this stuff about, um, you know, Cassio not being manly. He gets him drunk. Later on, instead of just saying oh, I saw Cassio sleeping with your wife. He says to Othello, I shared a bed with Cassio recently and he was, um, you know, writhing and and moaning and crying out for for Desdemona. And he does it in this way that it's so uh, inappropriately sexual (laughs) between the two of them. (laughs) Almost like Iago saying, oh yeah, Cassio thought I was your wife and had it, you know, tried to have it away with me. And it's just, it's too, it's far too far rather than just saying, oh, I saw him having it away with your wife. So yeah, Iago's a great character and um, interesting stuff happens there. I remember, because well, as I mentioned, we were reading that in school and we used to read it aloud. We used to, obviously our teacher would just kind of give us whoever we'd be reading that day. And I remember that part. I remember it so well. It's like in my brain Yeah. <laughs> because he was getting really frustrated, our English teacher. He was like an older man really Welsh quite you know just a nice Welsh guy <laughs> and he was getting really annoyed because we weren't like throwing ourselves into it especially mm. that part everyone was a bit too embarrassed to do it mm. and so he just did it himself and went for it and we were all just like Mr Dawson oh <laughs> yeah it's really uncomfortable isn't it it's sad that people really remember that bit because it's so unusual it's not mm. a way that you normally see that played out the power mm. of um Booze, lechery, and anger, and envy, and all those sorts of things. Um, one of the things I was going to say, like as well as the bad guys, you do see a change in attitude towards drinking with the comedy characters. So, you know, I said like it, it changes in the early days to the late days. There was a principal comic actor in Shakespeare's troupe. He was like, as he was like the most famous performer because he would also go and do essentially stand-up gigs as well. So in the first half more or less of Shakespeare's plays it's played by a guy called Will Kemp and Will Kemp was a clown he was you know he loved to play kind of stupid drunken really rude people he would play to the, to the groundlings a lot and it was all very base people loved him anyway he he left kind of about halfway through and went off and did his own thing that's another story he <laughs> he i'll tell you this he did a big stunt whereby he went to norwich and back um he went he went to norwich in nine days dancing all the way from london lad it's called it's called (laughs) his nine days wonder i know absolutely (laughs) that anyway he was a riot but then he got replaced with robert armin 
And Robert Armin had been a court musician. So he was very well respected. He was used to performing, you know, in front of mon- in the monarchy. Um, he was also a very talented singer and musician. So completely different kinds of actors. So in some of the later plays, you see fool rather than clown, for example. Um, although like they, they do get mixed up. But there's, there's definitely a difference in the characters when you, you've got like country bumpkin on the earlier plays and then you've got court jester on the later ones. And that's because they're played by different people. Mm-hmm. Um, so as an example, when Robert Armin played Fest Day in Twelfth Night, which is what I've also played and really loved, um, at <laughs> the beginning of the play, you get uh, Toby Belch, who is, you know, the <laughs> drunken fat guy uh, coming in, causing a riot at his uh, when his niece is supposed to be grieving. Um, and they're, they're, they're drunk and they're coming home, they're partying. In fact, you know when we talked about... Um, uh, 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 oh, God, what was I trying to think of? When we did um, mould cider. Wassailing! <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. When we did wassailing and I said they go around doing chiveries and they make lots of noise and kind of march through the street and all that sort of stuff. That's what they've been doing. So they've yeah. come back from Chibbery and they're making a lot of noise and they're very drunk. To- and he's being told off by the housekeeper. He says, do you think because you are virtuous that there should be no more cakes and ale? So he's really into it. But Feste the Fool hangs around with these characters, but he sort of drifts between different characters in the play of, of all strata. He can move between them. He's a, a total outsider. And when the grieving niece, Olivia is like disgusted by Sir Toby Belch, the drunken lout. She says to him, what's a drunken man like fool? And he says, like a drowned man, a fool and a madman. One draft above heat makes him a fool. The second mads him and the third drowns him. And she says, go thou and seek the crowner and let him sit on my cuz, for he's in the third degree of drink. He's drowned, go look after him. And the fool says, he is but mad yet, Madonna, and the fool shall look to the madman. So he's like, nah, he's only halfway there. I've seen worse. And <laughs> and it will be a fool who looks after the madman. Um, the other thing I love about the... So the thing I love about the later fools is they're very wise. They're very sober, like around drunken people. All of us, rather than being in the midst of all the drunken revelry, they suddenly stand aside and they start commenting on it and kind of like seeing through all that uh, drunken truth. They're also quite melancholy. Um, they mm. sing a lot of, even though it's a comedy, he ends up singing songs about death and lost love all the way through it, which people <laughs> in their productions often gloss over. I was in yeah. I was in a production of it, I remember, where I, I wrote the, my own songs, but like with the lyrics in the play, but my own tunes. And the director was like, oh, it's a bit sad. Can't you jolly it up? And I'm like, do you know what this song is about? <laughs> it's about going to a grave and laying cypress leaves on and stuff. Anyway, um, it, it's an interesting thing to kind of look out for how different characters' attitudes change to being drunk throughout the stages of Shakespeare plays, depending on when it's written and who's playing it. Mm-hmm. I thought we should talk about poisoned drinks because it's Shakespeare. <sighs> okay. I mean, there's the obvious one, isn't there? Mm. Romeo and Juge. Well, quite. So, <laughs> in Romeo and Juliet, there is um, there is the 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 draft that she takes to put herself to sleep, um, which is 
probably for that time would probably have been a controlled dose of deadly nightshade which kind of you know slows her heart puts her into something like a coma but i think what's interesting about romeo and juliet is i think you know particularly in maybe 20th century poisoning as a method of death or murder is often cited as a women's uh, murder method but it's not, uh, you know, like all the psychological and psychopathy reports to be like, oh, women are poisoners, men commit violent acts. But so, in Romeo and Juliet, in Shakespeare, it doesn't, it isn't that way. So in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo poisons himself when he finds what he thinks is Juliet dead. He knocks back what is presumably something like monkshood because it acts very yes. quickly and it would have been available. Um, yeah. Whereas Juliet, having no poison to hand <laughs> stabs herself <laughs> so it's Juliet who commits kind of like the violence uh violence against herself and it's Romeo he takes the poison I didn't um, know that yeah and can I say poison is much more satisfying dramatically because you never know exactly when it's going to hit you know they're going to die <laughs> but Romeo blathers on for quite a while after he's taken yeah. after he's taken the drop with, with a stabbing you've probably got half a line left but with yeah. uh, with poison, you can like eke it out a bit more, so it's good dramatically. He did bang on a bit, didn't he? He did a bit. He did a bit. Do you know what? I've I've played Romeo, Juliet, and Paris in Romeo and Juliet, not all at the same time, <laughs> at, di- at different times. Brilliant. I think um, the next, the logical next step is to do them all at the same time. Yeah, it clearly is. Okay, I, I'm willing to give it a go. Um, I got to, I got to try playing Juliet at the Globe actually at Shakespeare's Globe, which no was. So much fun because you get to make full use of the balcony. Like normally, mm. you, you don't necessarily get a good balcony <laughs> when you do Romeo and Juliet, but you got the authentic one that it makes such a difference. Yeah. Mm. Something that people often misinterpret about Juliet in Romeo and Juliet is um, they because she's a young woman. You know, she must be like fourteen or something. People often play her as naive. So they, you know, they're like they're young kids in love. Let's play the night, but they play particularly Juliet as naive, as opposed to Romeo. Romeo is like a passionate youth and you know knows what he wants and that sort of stuff. And Juliet's like, oh, I don't know, I'm so innocent, and virgin, or whatever. When you look at the way Shakespeare wrote it, it's the opposite. Much like with the poison and stab thing, right? So Romeo speaks in broken verse all the time, and when you have so verses like da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum, right? That's that's yes. perfect pentameter. Romeo has kind of like all these foots and these bleed overs and, and all sorts of stuff like that. What that tells you about the character is their mind isn't completely together. They don't know what they're going to say before they say it. And so the breath gets a bit weird. Mm-hmm. Juliet is, I think, the only character in all of Shakespeare that speaks in perfect verse from beginning to end. What that tells you about her character is she's decided what she's going to do before she does it. And... I don't see enough actors play that part of Juliet that actually, as much as you might disagree with the decisions she's made, she has made those decisions. She's not ignorant. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, rant over about that. She's, Another... she's a little sassy cow. <laughs> Do you know what? The, <laughs> the director who did the, uh, the Globe thing that I was in, um, he said it was the most coquettish Juliet he'd ever seen. <laughs> 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 like, damn right. <laughs> Um, another very famous poisoning in Shakespeare is in Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is, um, again, this is a male poisoner. So this is, 
you know, Hamlet's uncle who killed his father, Hamlet. He is the one who actually did the poisoning by dripping it into the ear, first of all. But then he also drops it into Hamlet's wine, thinking that Hamlet is going to drink the wine and, and will die. Like in the um, final scene of the play, he doesn't. Obviously, it's his mother who picks it up and drinks it by mistake and she dies. But yeah, it is. So she does die by poison, but it's a male poisoner. And then the um, the swords that they fight with poisoned as well. So there's more poison in that. Hamlet refers to the poison as cursed Hebanon. We don't know what that is because Hebanon's <laughs> not a thing. Probably henbane. It's probably like someone misheard it, miswrote it, or you know whatever, or another version of that. It's probably henbane, which would have done the job. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what it says in the tin. Yeah, exactly. People always think of Hamlet as like this really long and dense play. I don't know if you know about the different quarto versions of Shakespeare's plays. No. So, um, so the, the the version we mostly use now is the definitive folio version, which was compiled by people who worked with him, like his his, his producers, um, after he died. So they gathered all the definitive versions and, and published it, and that's mostly what we use. There were other versions floating around before that, um, and they were called quartos. They're called quartos because they're um, the size of a paper folded in four. Um, so that's why it's quarto. Then what normally happened was you Shakespeare would obviously have written, you know, the play. And the first version that went out into the public was usually someone who had pirated it. So it was either someone who came to see it and had like written it afterwards, scribbled down notes, or one of the actors might have like sold uh, their version of it. And so you often hear the first quarto is the bad quarto because it's the version that people remember or hear was interpreted but wasn't necessarily written by Shakespeare. Uh, and then you get second and third. So, uh, you know, after a certain time, maybe they release a more definitive version. And then the, as the play's performed, it evolves and, you know, the language changes slightly as well. Because you've got to remember, like, these are living documents. Um, the, Shakespeare never wrote an entire play because mm. he wrote roles. Now, a role, as we know it, is like when, a, when an actor takes on a character, I'm going to take on a role. But it was literally a roll of paper. And when you as an actor got your part in a play, you only got your lines. You didn't get everyone else's lines. So all you know about the play is is you, what you say and what you do. You got the last three words of the previous um, speech. So you got to remember, like, they were really good listeners in those days. We're terrible listeners today. We hardly ever actually yeah. listen to each other. We just wait for something to stop and then we say what we were thinking anyway. But they yeah. were very acute listeners. So as soon as they heard those three words come up, they'd be like, oh, that's my part. And then off they go and say it. Oh my god, I'd never last. They didn't even have to rehearse. <laughs> they would just get their role one day, come on stage the next, deliver it, figure out as it went along. And also because they usually play types of characters, they'd be like, oh, this is a king, I know how to play a king. Or this is a fool, I know how to play a fool. And that's why you get such different versions, because an actor would have to fill in like all the other parts. You don't have like a single one that people can just sell on. That's crazy. Yeah. These are good facts. Summoning in a lot. And so my my masters wasn't useless then. <laughs> no, you can tell your um, lecturers now that you finally put it. To I use. will. I will. 
Because the first quartos are almost never performed because, you know, scholars see them as trash. But I did have a go at performing the first quarto of Hamlet. And mm. I loved it. <laughs> it's about really? an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> mm. And it goes along at such a pace. There's no reflection. It's all action. And what it means is like for that final scene where they're fighting and everyone's like drinking poison and dying and stuff. It happens so fast that we turned it into a farce. So <laughs> all the tragic dying at the end of Hamlet, when normally you're sitting in a quiet, dark theatre, you've done you know three and a half hours and everyone's dying and you're like oh yes yes scratching my head instead this was the result of like um insane deceits and and murder plots and then everyone dies in the space of about a minute and you just go what was that (laughs) (laughs) so yeah if the chance to read or see a first quarter pops up have a go it's quite fun (laughs) noted um so there's something else i thought we should talk about which is the actual pubs the first one I have to talk about is The George, which is on Borough High Street. It's mm-hmm. um, Not only was it a, a pub and a coach house, a gallery to in, it was also an Elizabethan theatre in Yard. So you may remember when we did pub games, I did a little bit on um, bear baiting and things happening like in the courtyards of of pubs and inns really and I was like grim. yeah violent animal sports but also they go and perform theatre there so the George is one of those it still exists it's still there um, on Borough High Street there were eight rambling coaching inns that were on Borough High Street at that time and this is the last remaining one um, there are there is a description of it from Dickens it's always Dickens it's always the Pickwick Papers He says, great rambling queer old places with galleries and passages and staircases, wide enough and antiquated enough to furnish materials for a hundred ghost stories. Mm -hmm. The original version of it was actually burned down in 1677, but they rebuilt it to the original plans. So even if Shakespeare walked in today, he would recognise it. Good. Good man. It's it's a really it's a really lovely pub. It's it's very or not. Old. He might not judge him by how much sherry wine he drank. <laughs> this is also true. Um, another one I thought I mentioned is the anchor, which mm-hmm. you know, and, and again, this still exists. You can still go to it. It's one of the last uh, riverside inns from Shakespeare's time that is still there so it's very near it's very near the globe right on the riverside there's been a pub there in that location not those actual kind of bricks for 800 years um at that time it was the center not only of theater land there were a good four or five theaters around it but also you've got to remember that the thames was like a highway it was really busy so people would stop and it's right on the riverside so a highly frequented establishment where the people of the theatre could probably meet people who were conducting trade along the river as well. One of the one of the interesting things about don't, I don't hear it's much more about like older Shakespeare critics were people saying we don't understand how we can have so many references from around the world when you know he wasn't educated, he didn't go to university, and he didn't travel, and you're like, yeah, but he lived in London. <laughs> Like, he lived at the centre of trade. Imagine all the people he met and all the stories he heard. And it probably happened at somewhere like the Anchor. Um, 
The anchor also um, was frequented by our old friend Samuel Pepys, the diarist. He actually sat in that pub in 1666 watching the Great Fire of London. So all that information we have about the Great Fire of London came from that pub of Samuel writing about it. Because, of course, it was south of the river and the fire didn't go there. So they kind of watched it all happen. I used to drink quite a lot in the Anchor um, when I was working near London Bridge. Yeah. It was just nice because there was such an extensive area to sit outside. It was just huge. Yeah. And inside it's a little maze. There's lots of different places. I used to go there a lot. That's the pub that we used to go to after we did shows at the Globe. We would mm-hmm. go. We would go because it just felt like tradition. You know, it felt like history. So after we did the shows, we would always go there and have a pint. Lovely place. Um, I thought I'd tell you about something from his homeland of Warwickshire. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Bell Inn uh, sits on the River <laughs> Avon. I knew you'd laugh at that. I was leaving a pause. Uh, the Bell Inn on the River Avon in Warwickshire is a 17th century pub. And Shakespeare went there uh, for pre-birthday drinks. So the day before his birthday, he went there for pre-birthday drinks with another playwright called Ben Johnson. And on his way home, he got caught in a rainstorm, he got a fever, and then he died. Oh. On his birthday. Oh, shit, pal. Birth and death day. 23rd of April, which is why we're doing this episode today, because it's the nearest to Shakespeare's birth slash death day. So, yeah, just... The moral is, get an Uber. Yeah. And do you pre-drinking at home? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you pre-drink at home or get an Uber? One of the two. Um, the Bell Inn, apparently, is, I, mean, I haven't been there, but it's very nice. It keeps popping up on good pub guides um, for having excellent, excellent food. Also, that village has England's tallest maypole. <laughs> you would know. Who does not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who does not want to go and have a beverage in the Bell Inn and then dance around that maypole? Should we do it? Yes. Another uh, post-Covid jaunt for yeah, us there. absolutely. <laughs> uh, another one I want to tell you about is not Shakespeare, um, but I thought, seeing as we were in this space, I had to make sure you knew about Christopher Marlowe and his death, because it was also pub-related, sort of. Well, I actually, as well as reading Othello, I read um, Dr. Faustus mm-hmm. um, and thus started my love affair with Marlowe. So please do tell. Brilliant. So Christopher Marlowe, contemporary of Shakespeare, uh, the, the most well-known version of how he died is that he got into a tavern brawl in Deptford um, and was stabbed in the eye and killed instantly at the age of 27 that is mostly true Uh, the only part that probably isn't true is that it wasn't a tavern it was a private house that would have been um, like uh, rented out for for drinking and gaming and whatever so it was a more private establishment than a public tavern but the rest of it yes is true Um, he uh, had spent the day drinking and playing backgammon and all sorts of stuff with his associates, Ingram Fraser, Nicholas Kerries, and Robert Poley in Deptford. And then towards the end of the evening, a fight broke out between Marlowe and Fraser, and it was Fraser that, that killed him. 
that stabbed him. There's a lot of mythology around this because Marlowe was such a controversial figure, as were the rest of his colleagues. Um, not only was he, <laughs> not only was a playwright, he was a spy, he was an atheist, he was gay. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot going on in Christopher Marlowe's life. The uh, Polly and um, and Co as well were also spies. They, they were double agents in some cases. They did things internationally. It all uh, worked for um, Walsingham. They were known as Walsingham's men and Walsingham's company. Actors made very good spies because they mixed in all sorts of circles, like courtly and public, and they also toured freely around the country and abroad. So you find that a lot of actors um, had benefactors who would like support their theatre company, but in return expected information. From their tours mm-hmm. so a lot of that is going on at that time it's not that unusual for Marlowe to have been a spy what was unusual is that he was so outspoken as a gay man and an atheist and that didn't make <laughs> him any friends as well so anyway so th- there are all sorts of theories as to whether he was deliberately assassinated um, or whether it was just like a drunken fight gone wrong uh, mm-hmm. take your pick really whichever is more interesting but um, I mean, gone wrong it's, it's bit more than just a bit gone wrong yeah 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 (laughs) yeah exactly um i did i did a play uh based on the uh the last days of christopher marlowe before he was killed i got to play christopher marlowe based on a book called tamburlaine must die by louise welsh and um so i used to go up to edinburgh fringe a lot um and when you needed a break from all the theater madness I used to go and hang out at the book festival. Uh, so there's also, there's other festivals other than theatre and comedy and stuff going on at Edinburgh. And the book festival was so nice. It was like this little sort of garden and it was all peaceful and people reading quietly. And when I needed some time off, I would go there. And I went there one year and I, I saw Louise Welsh was giving a, a talk. And the previous year, on my way back from Edinburgh, as I got on the train, I was like, oh, I'll get a book to read on the way back. And I bought Tamblaine Must Die by her. So when I saw her the next year, I was like, oh, I read your book last year when I was coming back from Edinburgh. I really enjoyed it. It's so theatrical, so interesting for theatre people. I presume it's being made into like a TV series or a play or something. And she was like, no, it isn't. Do you want to do it? And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and that was literally what happened. So I wrote the, I, I adapted that book into um, a theatrical version, into a play. We performed it in London for a month. Um, and because I'm that guy, I also played Christopher Marlowe. Um, <laughs> and it was such good fun. And we we incorporated drinking into it. So because there were tavern brawls and all that sort of stuff going on, um, we invited people into the bar before we invited them to... It was a sort of... Uh, what do you call it? <laughs> an immersive, an immersive piece of theatre. You had to walk around with us. Um, but okay. it all started in the bar and I would sit there in the bar and the bar person would come and pour real wine into my cup as I sat there waiting. So I always had a glass of wine during the show uh, <laughs> just to make it a bit more authentic. But the author, Louise Welsh, came down to see the show um, and uh, she really enjoyed it and uh, invited us all to go out to uh, a bar in Soho afterwards and we drank the night away and had fun. Brilliant. <laughs> Theatre and story. booze, inseparable, yeah. inseparable. But yeah, I had to say about that one. Um, 
do you want to say anything else? I've got two more short things to to round it off because I could talk forever. But is there anything else you want um, to throw in? I did actually remember something while we were chatting about pubs. Mm-hmm. It's not a pub per se. It's a bit of a cheesy story, so I have to bear with. But it was actually the first date that I went on with my now husband. Um, he came up to London. That's when I was obviously living in London. He came up and I was trying to think of some cool places to take him for a drink. And um, this is back when the Props Cafe was still there. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard about it. You probably No, I know that. Yeah, I went. So it was um, it was like a cafe bar. that the, It was a pop-up just outside the National Theatre on the South Bank. Um, and a lot of it was kind of old props and scenery and stuff from stuff that had been on in the National. Um, and it just made me think of that because, um, I mean, they had a ton of stuff in there. They had, like, light fixtures from um, Danny Boyle's Frankenstein. They had, like, puppets from Warhorse in there. But, like, one of the central features in the main bar, they'd used um, the pool table from their adaptation of uh, A Comedy of Errors. Um, that was like part of the main bar, which was really cool. It was. I loved that place. It was a really it's good so idea. Cool. I hope they do it again when we're all allowed out to play. Yeah. Um, right, two more short things for you. Mm-hmm. One, are you aware that the Globe Theatre burned down uh, in 1613? Like the one we I have know. now is modern. It's not. It's yeah, not the original. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that it was a fire. Yeah, so in June 1613, the Globe Theatre went up in flames. It was during a performance of Henry VIII, uh, which uses cannon fire in the play. The cannon (laughs) went off, misfired, ignited the wood beams and the thatching. It all went up. Boo-hoo. Not a good time for Shakespeare um, after he went back home, etc. So everyone survived that fire like no one was hurt they had great evacuation procedures back then (laughs) um (laughs) do you know what i was gonna say not like now purely for the purpose of a good friend of mine is in charge of that sort of stuff at the globe theater but given that no one else listening knows that that would not be an appropriate thing to say (laughs) um (laughs) scrap that anyway no one no one was hurt apart from one man one man Mm -hmm. at that fire in the globe theater his crotch caught on fire <laughs> his pantaloons went up in flames but thankfully a close a friend of his nearby had the wherewithal to take their bottle of ale and douse the fire out <laughs> oh so would you do that for me i would not know because i don't want to waste my <laughs> ale <laughs> I'd i think that's a good that's a good way to measure your friendship going forward if my pants are on fire, would you throw your pint over them? No, it depends how much it costs. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good argument for always making sure you you are allowed to take booze into the theatre, just in case this scenario arises. It's like, wow, well, yes. what am I going to put my friend's crotch out with if I don't have some ale in my hand? Yeah. If the cannons misfire, what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, and the last thing i just remembered that i must put in is um one of shakespeare's words for drunk was fap <laughs> fap oh my mum is definitely gonna text me but like what does fap mean <laughs> <laughs> well i'm gonna leave it there um <sighs> there are other words Google for it, drunk mom. but i think we should, i think we should do an episode <laughs> just on words for drunk so I will, I will leave it at that but um i had to get that one in fap 
<laughs> right. Please just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't Google it. <laughs> text my brother. He'll tell you. Yeah, text your brother. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to exit Pursued by a Bear. Cheers, everybody. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or home, you can always hear me sing in this song. Show me the way to go home. That's me with my bear. <laughs> Not my crotch on fire. <laughs> I really couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> And other people have said the same. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>